if you are making a what you might call a mistake and you are giving yourself a hard time about it, that's not going to feel good, right? Whereas you could just say, ah, I did that again. This is good. This is actually great because I've learned something and I'm not going to make that mistake again. Hello everyone and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydie Buchelman. This podcast is made for those who want to develop or strengthen the communication skills, cultural savvy, insights into current trends and conditions, and mindsets that are essential in a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in-depth cultural context to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode, I get to share a conversation that I had with Helen Iwada. Helen is known as the less effort, more impact coach based in Tokyo. Helen helps women in business excel at their work without feeling exhausted through the power of the Sasaga success cycle. Originally from England, Helen has lived and worked in Japan for over 30 years. After two decades in education, local government, and the corporate world, Helen established her own business in 2013 and is now obsessed with helping overworked women use their time, energy, and expertise for less effort and more impact. Helen is a TEDx speaker and coach, Nikkei style columnist, author of the Japanese book, Ego no Shigoto Jutsu, host of the Sasuga podcast with over 200 episodes, wife, mother, and a karate world champion. But we'll hear so much more about her story and what she has to share in today's conversation. So let's get into the episode. Thanks so much for sharing your time on the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to seeing where our conversation leads. But would you mind quickly introducing yourself to my audience? Absolutely. So I'm Helen Iwata, originally from the UK, and I've lived and worked in Japan for over 30 years. I am currently increasingly known as the less effort, more impact coach. And I primarily support women in Japan and beyond to excel in their work without feeling exhausted、um, through the power of the Sasuga success cycle. We'll definitely be getting into that later. But first, I want to hear how did you end up in Japan 30 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more than 30 years. I actually kind of stopped counting because it's like 30. That's, you know, who needs to know the exact number after that? I was、uh, like you on the JET, the JET program when I first came to Japan.、Um, but what got me interested in Japan in the first place was I was always interested in foreign languages,、uh, foreign cultures. There was the TV drama Shogun on TV in the UK many, many years ago, in the 80s, I think it was. And I, I was fascinated with that. And I was like obsessed with the Japanese language. And I was actually, I had my notebook and I was like making notes the whole time and learning Japanese that is really not practical these days, like the whole Anjinsan kind of stuff. <laughs> I was like, you know, news today. And then I studied, I studied French, German, and Spanish in high school and German in university with Japanese as a,、uh, as we call it in the UK, a subsidiary, as a minor subject. So that's how I got interested in the whole thing. Yeah. So, how did you decide to come to Japan instead of exploring other areas in、uh, Europe? It's a little bit closer than moving all the way out here. Europe, boring. <laughs> Japan, nice and exotic and interesting. Yeah, when I went into to university, I was like, I, I really want to study something that's more 
I think it's like that idea of challenge. It's like a real driver for me. I, I, I wanted a more of a, a challenge with a more sort of exotic language. And I, and I was considering Chinese or Russian as, um, or Japanese. Also, part of the reason I did choose Japanese was purely because of the university that was offering it. And I, I visited the university, uh, really liked the, the campus and everything. And so I was like, okay, yeah, let's go. And then I did visit Japan in my second year of university uh, for a month. I was at Kanagawa University for three weeks studying, did a, a week's homestay and then traveled for a week. And I'm like, this is great. I'm going to come back to Japan when I graduate. And so I did through the JET program initially. Um, and I thought I would be in Japan for a year or two. You know, it's the old story. <laughs> How many times have you heard this? And then it's been over 30 years. Yeah. Yep. The standard two years that actually turns into 20 plus. <laughs> Absolutely. So people come here so and funny. just fall in love with it. So how did you move from your time on the JET program to ultimately becoming this less effort, more impact coach that you've become today? <laughs> right. So I was, I was on the JET program for three years, two years teaching English, one year as the, the CIR, the Coordinator for International Relations in Yokohama which I loved so much. And um, I worked with a small Japanese company after that. I then went worked with uh, Nippon Steel, very, very traditional Japanese company for like seven years. And then, you know, it's it's always been like, like you know, talking like this, this something new, something challenging is kind of a theme in my life. And so after my seven years with Nippon Steel, which I loved, I was looking for something different. I said to my boss, he was a great guy, great guy, still is a great guy. I said, I'm, I'm kind of bored. He's like, well, go to New Caledonia and get this nickel contract. I'm like, okay, went, did that. Like, I'm bored again. <laughs> like, he gave me a few challenges and then eventually like, no, I, I really need to go and find something different. And I, it, these were the days when we used like newspapers and we had, you know, actually looked for the job opportunities in newspaper, newspapers. And I found this like McKinsey and I was like, no idea what that is <laughs> and applied and uh, I was with McKinsey then for 10 years as the manager of uh, client communications after 10 years it was like okay time for something different and then I left McKinsey and then the next day I set up my own business and now I support multiple multinationals with the uh, training around communication skills and also women's success Plus online, I have various programs and the Sasaka podcast out every Monday. So yeah, that's how I got here. What was it like starting out your business at the beginning? Were there any major hurdles that you weren't expecting? Or did you kind of have a good idea of what you were getting yourself into? Oh, absolutely no idea what I was getting myself into. And and I am really the sort of person I just like, like I'll just sort of go without really thinking very much about things and then just sort of see what happens. Uh, as I as I go along so which I think has helped me a lot in you know people talk about the culture shock of coming to Japan I'm like not really because I wasn't I didn't have like the great expectations and I was just like see see what it's like same with setting up my own business uh, just like see see how it goes I was really fortunate to have the connections especially from McKinsey to start off with um, and then you know growing from other places which meant that I was working 
very very soon <laughs> well actually in that first week after uh, after setting up my business so it yeah it wasn't I don't think it was difficult yeah how were you able to leverage those connections were your contacts at McKinsey mostly non-Japanese people working in Japanese companies or kind of how did your network look at that time so the so with McKinsey there is um there's a very strong alumni network so uh, I had connections through there. So there were various people who were, who had said, you know, when, because I'd had some requests for work and I said, I can't do that because I'm working, you know, fully at McKinsey. And so I contacted some of those people afterwards. I said, okay, now I'm, I'm available. And so that's how some of those things started. Interestingly, some of my connections also came through the martial arts world, which was quite, because <laughs> it just happens that other people in martial arts were working for big companies and they needed uh, some support as well. So it's like, I think that's one kind of lesson is you never know. You really never know where the connections are going to come from. And sometimes it can be a relationship that's from years and years and years ago that suddenly turns into something that's really valuable. So which mar- martial arts were you involved with or are you still involved with? Karate. Yeah, that's one that I wish that I'd gotten started in. Was that something you started as a child or did you get into it at an older age? I started it in university in the UK. So I, I did do, I studied self-defense for, as a teenager uh, and then did judo for a little while in the UK. And then it was in university. <laughs> one of my friends said, um, shall, we, shall, we, shall we go and start karate? And I was like, yeah, okay then. And so there, was, there were four of us. Yeah, four of us who went uh, together, four girls. One of them gave up the first lesson. She's like, nope. <laughs> and then two of them gave up after three months. And then I, I basically continued. Yeah. Great. And are you still involved today? No, I am not. I <laughs> I became a world champion in 2009 and I kind of lost my enthusiasm after that. <laughs> Don't see where else you could go after that. So that definitely makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I've also practiced uh, Kobudo as well, which is kind of, uh, that's also a lot of fun. But uh, I'm not, I'm not actively, you know, participating in the dojo um, these days. But my heart is still very much with karate and martial arts. Right. It sounds like it's something that you've, that was a big part of your developmental stage as a young person. Oh, huge. Absolutely huge. Yeah. And even like, not just as a young person, I mean, even I was still training when I was pregnant. Like I, uh, I had the, the, my belt, you know, my black belt around my belly, which was like massive. And so there's like two little tiny bits of the belt sticking out at the end and (laughs) still training. So then going back to your business, how did you end up targeting primarily Japanese women as sort of your ideal clients? So a lot of that actually came from people asking for it, asking for that kind of support. So I think the the initial sort of trigger was the the kikake was um, the one of the women because I was primarily focusing on uh, communication skills, and one of my one of the women in my online programs said, oh, Helena, I really wish that you did broader coaching and not just focusing on communication skills because you've got so much um, life experience, so much professional experience. It would be really valuable, especially to women. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting thought. And then actually somebody else started asking me about coaching as well on a broader 
uh, scale. And so it, it, it really developed from there. Um, I also, in the very early days, I, I was running um, retreats, actual in-person retreats, this is before the pandemic, um, for women. And I loved, I absolutely loved that. And then gradually, it was actually in late 2019, when I actually made the intentional shift to really focus on women's success, I was in Dallas and I was uh, I was part of a mastermind, you know, a group of people who are kind of supporting each other to achieve their goals, just in case any of your listeners don't know what a mastermind is. And we were presenting what our uh, results had been through the year. And so I was talking about, you know, so well in, yeah, in the uh, communications training side and this has happened and this happened. And then the women's success side, this happened and this happened. And everyone's like, oh my goodness, Helen, did you, did you notice how much your whole animation changed? And like how excited you got about it when you were talking about the women's success? I was like, oh, yeah. And I went, I actually went through a kind of like identity crisis almost. I mean, it, it, I was actually in tears because it was like, I had this realization to to kind of let go of my attachment to purely being the communication expert and then expanding into being a broader uh, women's success coach. And it's kind of interesting as we're talking about this now, because just today I've had a couple of people saying, can you do the same sort of thing for men as well? Because like they, they need this stuff as well. And like, look, I want to stay focused. I want to stay focused. So this also related to your question about, you know, the, the kind of the reason for focusing is I, I know that what I coach people in is actually, it's, it's definitely not exclusive to women in Japan. It's, I would say that anyone can really benefit from it. But to me, it's important to, to be a little bit more focused so that I can be particularly supportive to that group. I can really, you know, speak their language. A lot of the women who come to me, they're like, well, you know, it's really great, Helen, because you have this global experience. You're a native speaker of, speaker of English, but this is me stumbling over my words as I say I'm a native speaker of English. You have this extensive career experience in Japan in the very domestic Japanese industry as well as as very global um, plus you're a mother you know married to Japanese so I like I have that very broad um, experience that then and then also having gone through burnout you know and all these things I'm very open so that's why a lot of women do come to me and because I do have the expertise as well <laughs> Right. Definitely. It's kind of, it's just the alignment of what people are asking you for, what lights you up the most and where you think you have the most to offer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So then just from your experience, both your own personal experience, but then also the people that you work with, are there any unique challenges that Japanese women tend to face? Probably it's more a case of that perhaps they are amplified in a lot of senses like one thing that is really common among people is that is this kind of underlying sense of not feeling good enough being worried about what other people think even you know when you look around at people who seem incredibly successful and it could be men as well like when because I do coach like you know male executives and they they have their insecurities too so I would say that start, starting off, you know, everybody has, or not necessarily everybody, I can't speak for the entire world, um, 
many people have these insecurities, then in Japan, there is so much societal pressure in general about, you know, group harmony, worrying what people think. And then even more for the women. So it's just like amplified, amplified, amplified. So that's why there's, there's so much need. And, you know, as we know, there's so much talk about uh, in the in the workplace, not enough female leaders, not enough support for women. You know, it, I find it very sad that there's many corporate trainings that I have been invited to deliver and I go into the room um, and there's, these are very senior people. Like I can have 40 directors of a big organization and I'm kind of lucky if there's one woman in there. So clearly <laughs> women need more support. Yeah. So then with all of these, yeah, no, it's very good that people have that sort of third party to look at <laughs> the unique situation that they've been placed in and help them work through it. But then just from your experience, what does it take for women to be successful in Japan when they have all of these compounding expectations laid on them throughout their career and life? Well, probably the first question is, what does success mean to that individual? Because success is very different for each person. You know, is it is it your status? Is it how much money you earn? Is it just being a great mother, wife, whatever? You know, it's really it's really different. So what it comes down to, what I would say it to be successful is a huge part of it is how you think. Like the power of your thoughts is huge. And so this is a really kind of uh, foundational part in, in the coaching that I do is like really, you know, examining your thoughts, your thought patterns, and then changing your thought patterns so that they support you instead of giving you a hard time. Um, also, listen to your body because so many women, especially here in Japan, working women uh, are just like so focused on doing a great job, um, keeping colleagues happy, keeping family members happy. And then they're just completely neglecting themselves and not paying attention to, you know, how they feel and their health. And then what, the other part that I would say is, so I say, choose your thoughts, listen to your body and do what works for you. Because there's so much focus here in Japan on this is the way to do the thing, right? There's only one right answer. <laughs> and people are different. Like, okay, there's a lot of similarities, but people have differences as well. And what works for one person very well may not work so well for another person. So I, I really say test things out. Um, like my coaching style as well. It's not like this is the way to do it. It's like, here are some options. You know, what what would work best for you? And test it out a little bit. And if it doesn't work immediately the first time, then let's tweak it a little bit and see what actually does work. So then how do you go about helping people address the way that they think? Because obviously it varies from person to person, but it's very easy for people to get stuck in very rigid patterns, especially if they have dealt with mental illness or have a history of abuse, it can be very easy for people to get wrapped up in automatic ways of thinking. So how do you kind of break that? Yeah, I mean, you don't even need that kind of history. Like it's, it's normal human behavior that we have these repetitive thought patterns that, uh, that, that just, you know, come up. And 
a lot of it is is driven by the reptilian brain, the oldest part of the brain. There, there are, you know, the survival instinct. We have the choice, though, to use the neocortex, the thinking part of the brain, and so um, that is something that you know I can do a workshop or whatever, and I can introduce some like little examples, and people will will go, oh, oh, right, that's that's good, and maybe they can go and have some success with it. It really is it can be tricky to make the changes though, because this is, you know, the way you've been thinking for, for many, many, many years. This is why I'm so passionate about group programs. So I do one-on-one coaching, but I also have online group programs because the advantage there is it's more long-term. So you, um, you get that kind of repetition. Plus the other part is you're seeing other people as well. And when like when one woman for example is going through some from coaching uh or like like we have you know coaching calls and she'll say something and then I'll kind of question the word choice because she might be giving herself a hard time in in with not consciously obviously the 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 uh, saying things like I need to do this I need to do that right that was that was one thing that I used to do a lot as well because I've gone through all this myself (laughs) Right? The putting pressure on myself, like, oh, I don't have time, I need to do this. Then when you have someone who can kind of just point that out in a in a caring way, and you have the support from the people around you, that's when it make it makes it much easier to make the changes. Right. And we're always so much better at giving other people advice than taking our own advice. So I think it is really helpful to see the things happening in others that we can't necessarily see in ourselves because we're too wrapped up in our own thoughts or you shrug it off saying, oh, they don't understand my specific context. But when you can see other people working through it, you're like, oh, that's similar to me in X, Y, Z way. That makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, you have the, the Zoom call and you have all the faces on Zoom and I'm talking to one of the women and then everybody else is nodding like, out of out of that normalization is key, definitely. Definitely. Normalization is, yeah, it's so important because a lot of people, because a lot of these sort of things are not spoken about openly, that people's insecurities are not usually brought to the surface because you're worried about what other people think, then people think they are not normal. Like the the number of people who've come to me and said, actually, I'm really nervous about giving presentations. Actually, I start to sweat when I give presentations. Like, it's normal. It's actually part of your human physiology. <laughs> like, if that didn't happen, I would be like, hmm, okay, you're not normal then. <laughs> so then, uh, have you noticed any differences in kind of what it takes to be an effective communicator in Japan? versus in a Western context, your home culture in the UK or any other cultures that you've worked with? Oh, that is, that's a tricky question for me, having been here for so long. I'm so, so, so focused on Japan. It's become the norm for me. Perhaps in communication, something like decision-making, that's the first thing that comes to my mind, that decision-making does take a long time here. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, I think it's, probably fairly well known that Japanese is a is a is a an indirect communication style so uh, it can often take a little while to really understand what somebody's point is whereas other cultures 
I mean, it obviously depends on the culture, but other cultures can be much more direct. And that then can seem a little bit offensive from the Japanese perspective. So especially dealing with that sort of indirect communication style or the expectation of reading the air, do you have any tips for people who might be starting out with that? Because it, it can be easy once we get used to it to just say, oh, you'll you'll learn it eventually. But is there any advice that you could give people who are just starting out on their kukiyomu <laughs> career? We're picturing here someone who's come to Japan relative, relatively new to Japan and they're having a conversation with someone. I think it's probably just be aware that things may not be what they seem. <laughs> so like, I mean, I, I, like a specific example that comes to my mind was um, years ago, um, I was, this was in the, the Nippon Steel days, and I was interpreting for the, it was between the, the Nippon Steel guys and the coal suppliers from Australia. And so the coal supplier guy, the Australian guy was like talking and I was interpreting and the Japanese guy was like nodding and going, hi, 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 hi. And then at the end of the meeting, the, the um, Australian guy came to me and he's like, well, that went so well. I was just really happy because he was just saying yes to everything. And I was like, uh, actually, no, because <laughs> the the high, even though it can literally be translated as yes, it's not necessarily a yes. It's the, you know, it's the I I hear you, I understand what you're saying. It's tricky because, like you know, you said what 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 advice could I give? That's a like a quick solution. I do think it is a bit of a a learning learn back learn from your mistakes type of uh, situation though. Yeah. Yeah. For my own sake, I wish that there were quick solutions as well. But just paying attention and being open to relearning some things is probably the key. Well, and then that actually goes back to my first point about choose your thoughts and that, you know, the power of your thoughts. Because if you are making a what you might call a mistake and you are giving yourself a hard time about it, then that's not going to feel good. Right. Whereas you could just say, ah, I did that again this is good. This is actually great because I've learned something and I'm not going to make that mistake again. And my goodness, the number of mistakes that I've made in my time here, <laughs> the embarrassing situations. And it's like, and I'm still here. <laughs> I survived. The more you can learn from it, the better off you'll be. Beating yourself up about it doesn't help a whole lot. It's totally, it's the attitude. It's like, you know, choose your thoughts. So then is the style of giving effective presentations in Japan any different from what you've experienced in other cultural contexts or from individuals from other countries? Have you seen any differences there? I mean, I would say that there are some differences. At the same time, those differences are kind of like minor. They're the sort of the icing on the cake when it comes to someone who wants to improve their presentation skills. There are a lot more fundamental areas to focus on first, like just to give you a specific example, is that it, as I mentioned earlier, it's very normal to be nervous when you're giving a presentation. And that is really because you're focusing on yourself, right? You're, it's natural, that again, um, triggered by the, the reptilian brain that you're, you're, you're focused on yourself. It's like, oh, all these people looking at me, am I being accepted? You know, what people think of me. Um, when you actually sh intentionally shift your focus to the audience rather than focusing on yourself, 
you're thinking about the audience. Okay, who are these people in front of me? Um, what are what are their needs? How can I support them? Just doing that is going to make a big difference in how you feel. So for presentation skills, there are many parts like that, and then you know, you know the whole structure of your language, the body language, the use of the voice, all of these things that that are much more impactful than the kind of fine nuances of the um, cultural differences in presentations in my mind some people may disagree that's my opinion (laughs) that definitely makes a lot of sense so if you were speaking with somebody who was like you said very wrapped up in the fact that oh I feel nervous I feel sweaty I don't really know if I'm giving a good presentation when I go up there what advice would you give them to improve? Would it be to try to find a coach? Would you want them to try something out like Toastmasters or anything like that? What would you tend to recommend to people? Okay, loads there. So Toastmasters, I have never been to myself. I do know a lot of people who have been to Toastmasters and find it really useful. So so that, that could certainly be an option. There are things that you can do yourself, like the one that I just mentioned is focusing on the other person so let me give you three specific things that you can do yourself there's a lot more but let me let's keep it simple so focusing on the other person the second one is like all of these things that that happen in your body these uh, physiological changes so like it's normal that your heart beats fast it's normal that you start to sweat it's normal that your throat goes dry these are all triggered by the reptilian brain there's reasons for it i won't go into the whole (laughs) thing right now um, but these are things that you 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 cannot control consciously, like it happens in your body. The one thing that you can control consciously is your breathing, because normally you tend to get like shallower, faster breath when you get get nervous. So you can slow yourself down and take deeper breaths. So that's one that I would uh, recommend, along with just really thinking about your your overall body language and posture there's a great uh, for those who haven't seen it there's a great ted talk by amy cuddy where she talks about the power of of body language and how body language it's not just the impact it has on other people but the impact it has on yourself on your own brain like when you are sort of you know you've got closed body language you're sort of hunched over and sort of nervous that sends a signal to your brain saying things are not good at the moment (laughs) whereas if you intentionally even though you don't feel the confidence at first you intentionally um, stand up taller put your shoulders back and all of those things that sends the positive signals to the brain that that supports you so after after you've done the what you can change physiologically then the next one is practice right because uh this is something that so many people forget about they're they're so focused on uh, if they're doing slides for a presentation, for example, like getting the slides sorted out, making them all, you know, look nice, but then they don't actually spend the time to actually rehearse the presentation. So make sure that you that you do that. If people want to, you know, take it a step further, I have an online a self study online course. <laughs> Speak like an expert online, so uh, that is also an option. You know, it's uh, it's really depends on the person and how important presentation skills are for you and you know how how far you want to go with that so then going back to your identity as somebody who helps people be more effective with less effort 
why is it so challenging for people to figure out how to do that? It seems like such an obvious solution to being overly busy to just focus on being more efficient. But why is it so hard for us to do ourselves? Well, it's a lot of it is back to what we were mentioning earlier about how concerned we are about what other people think of us. And um, the, you know, I talk a lot about the importance of self-care. Self-care, when I talk about it, is not just about physical self-care. It's also about your the way that you, that you that you think. But if we just take the example of, you know, rest, taking time off, people feel guilty about it. Uh, it this comes up so much among the, the women when they first join my programs that they're, they're like, oh, no, I, could, I couldn't possibly take time for myself you know what will my colleagues think what will my family think so that that's that makes it very very difficult to implement less effort and more impact so then how can people um, kind of take those actions to become more efficient in their lives I would say if you're going to do it on your own (laughs) is to start small actually no before before that I would say just decide how important this is for you. If you don't think it's important, there's no point in even attempting to do it. And then to clarify for yourself, is it important to embrace less effort and more impact is really to look at where you're going to be six months from now, if you continue to work at your current level. And what is that current level costing you in terms of your health? in terms of your relationships, in terms of your work performance. And like for health, especially if you're young, um, you may not realize, but there's things like, you know, your cortisol levels, they start to go up and up and up. um, And you don't realize how much the overdoing is, is affecting you until it really, really comes out. And I, I had that experience with, um, at one point, and I had one of my the normal, you know, Ningendoku um, medical checks, um, and I was called back because they said that some of the results were a little off. Um, when I went back, it was actually a few months later, and the results had gone back to normal. And I said, "Well, how could that be?" They said, "Well, were you under a lot of stress when you came last time?" And I said, "Oh, yeah, I really was. That's it." And so, fortunately, that was something that that I was able to change at the time but if I had not caught that at that time then who knows what it could have led to that was that was more serious so obviously people struggle with this every gender every culture this idea that you have to work hard because everybody like what will everybody around you think trying to meet other people's expectations yeah but it does seem to be a little bit even more difficult in Japan at least in my own experience and I wonder if it comes down to the culture of gambaru, yeah. <laughs> where you always you always have to do oh, your totally. best. The bare minimum is to do your best. There is no doing the bare minimum. Well, I've also heard a concept some time ago where doing your doing your best is actually not overdoing. <laughs> if you are overdoing, you are naturally not doing your best because there's going to be the cost to it which could be a long-term cost so and I, I absolutely agree with you though that the concept of gambaru is it's very it's very much seen as 
positive, like gaman as well. You know, gaman is seen as a positive thing, as a virtue. And I don't see it as a virtue. Like, I gaman in the sense of like not complaining about things or like you know for example when there's been a natural disaster and it's often reported in international news like oh the Japanese are so great because of the the gaman sort of uh concept which that I agree with because something has happened can't do anything about it you so you you in that sense put up with the situation but when it comes to gaman of like you're in a really unpleasant work environment and you're putting up with it that that I I do not see as a virtue at all so in a situation like that okay how what does it take to get out of it probably comes down to as you were talking I mean it reminded me of the idea of a locus of control like some things are just completely out of your control but if it is something that's in your control there's no reason to just gum on or gumbaru and suffer in that situation just for the sake of making other people happy or comfortable. Yeah. I mean, it's also like the the idea that really there are no problems because if it's what you might call a problem and it's something that you can't do anything about, it's not a problem. Um, If it's something that you can do something about, then it's a project. (laughs) You just do something about it. (laughs) Definitely. So then would you mind telling us a little bit more about your own experience with burnout that you alluded to before? Yeah, so that's this could go on a very long time. So let me let me focus myself. Um, yeah, I mean, I've had more than one episode of burnout. Let's see. I'll give you the the one example where this is when in the early days when I just started with McKinsey, I joined the company. It was a team of three, and one person left the day that I joined. Another person left after a month or so, and so I ended up being the team the communications team so I got and I had a very a young daughter at the time as well so I was really into the I've got to do my best for my in my new job and I've got to say yes to everything and also the office was growing at the time so there was a lot of uh, like translation work interpreting work editing work I couldn't do everything all myself I was I, I had outsourcing as well managing all of that so it was just so much going on and then one and I ended up across my daughter at I think she was, she was Hoiku Mama, or she might have been in Hoiku in, at nursery then. And of course, little kids, they come back with all sorts of bugs and things. And so I caught, I got this like cough that was going on and on and on, getting worse and worse. And then one day I was at my desk coughing, and then I just had this like, <clears throat> the bronchial tract went into spasms, couldn't breathe, got taken to hospital in an ambulance. Um, so yeah, that was my... That was my first uh, experience of burnout. But then it wasn't the only one. Like I, I still continued because I was still in the whole mindset, the whole identity of being a hard worker. And it was only for me after going through burnout again and then also working with um, actually multiple coaches and being part of, part, a part of several um, programs gradually 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 making changes that I then just finally I I would say now I've I've let go of that it's gone (laughs) I am just not I am not willing I am absolutely not willing to put myself through that kind of um, hard work 
it's just not worth it because those costs I mentioned earlier in terms of health, in terms of the relationships, in terms of the um, ultimate work performance and happiness, it's not worth it. It really isn't. How do you think people can advocate for themselves in those situations where, again, the expectation is that you work hard no matter what, you get the work done, you, no matter how long it takes, no matter how much effort it takes, just get it done versus how do you point out the fact that if you want to be more sustainable, there's, there's a need for balance. Do you have any tips for people who might be in a situation where, again, the culture goes against their own best interest in their workplace? So I would say, first of all, see if you can get some allies (laughs) You know, talk to some people who who have that who who can understand the this approach. Um, spread the word as much as possible. Get them listening to the Sasaga podcast. You know, <laughs> those kind of things. Get get some support, and then either your depending on your position, either yourself or someone who's more senior, maybe who you've had that trusted relationship, talking with someone who is more senior, and just having a conversation around this, and just like just really looking at. Because this is not, I'm not bringing something that's totally revolutionary myself. Because this is a this is a global movement. Like more and more people are talking about, like Ariana Huffington talking about the uh, the importance of sleep. And there's like you know the the, the whole I, like Oprah talks about the importance of rest. Yeah, you know, like this, it's it's global, right? And more and more and more people are talking about the importance of of taking care of yourself. And have that conversation, but also when you're having that conversation, looking at what the other per- the person you're talking to, what are their values, right? This is a whole part of communication skills as well. When you're communicating, you're looking, you're, you're considering what are the values of the person you're talking with. So if you know the value of somebody who's a leader in an organization, obviously they want great work performance, right? Well, are you going to get great work performance from your colleagues who are absolutely exhausted they can't think straight they're really unhappy they're on the point of leaving because they can't cope um or are you going to look at doing things in a, in a different way so that um, you are going to get great results so have that you know have that conversation and then the, the, the next step is if if that falls on deaf ears which it could then you always have a choice, right? Go and look for something else. This is actually one of my um, one of my clients right now. She's going through this. Like she has a, a her current work environment is um, is just not not supportive at all, not at all. And so um, she's now, in fact, she's yeah potentially got a very good opportunity coming up right now. <laughs> That's great to hear. It's great that to see that it's becoming more mainstream for people in Japan to switch jobs as needed because otherwise if you ended up in a bad work situation, there really wasn't anything you could do if you wanted to work. So it's a relief to see that things have been changing recently. Yeah, people are so there was a, a McKinsey report out recently about um women leaving the workplace, like talented women leaving the workplace if they didn't have a manager who was supportive of them. It's very unfortunate to see. So do you have any personal examples of a communication breakdown in Japan that you think was possibly due to cultural differences? Does anything come to mind? I do, right? I do. This this is from years and years ago. And I was, oh my goodness. 
so this is years ago when somebody sent me like I, I have a strong translator background actually I loved your episode with Heidi like that was just oh my goodness brilliant brilliant um and uh so years and years ago somebody sent me some um some translation like software that they developed this was somebody I knew and they sent me this you know as a sort of gift now in I was like I had a lot going on and and I had a little look at it I'm like this is going to take me ages to actually work out and then you know send anything meaningful back to the person so I didn't I didn't you know send my sort of comments or whatever and then um I, don't, I can't remember what the time frame was but it was a little bit later and the person sent me this really strongly worded Japanese email about how rude I was that they'd sent me something and I hadn't said thank you and like rah, rah. it was like really like this tirade and so to me that was just that whole communication cultural difference because we both had good intentions, right? He was, he was, he had the good intention that he was giving me this gift of something that he thought would be useful for me. And I had the intention of sending him my comments when I'd had the time to look through it and, and actually give him something meaningful. To me, that was more relevant than just saying a quick thanks. Yeah. So that was, that, oh, that really, I was really, really hurt at the time and I felt so bad about it. <laughs> yeah when good intentions don't quite hit the way that you want them to it can be really upsetting that is a really tough one right and that's also why I encourage people to to consider like if they're feeling annoyed or whatever about somebody else's behavior just take a moment to consider where that person is coming from and what's actually driving that behavior because it may not be what you think at all in fact, I think it usually isn't. <laughs> people are usually a little bit more complicated than we give them credit for. Yeah, and pretty much most people, I would say, have good intentions. Yeah. So then if you were chatting with somebody who was going to Japan to work or for a business trip, and they really only had time to learn one thing about Japan or its culture ahead of time, what would you advise them to learn about? That is a really tricky one again. And... Probably what I want to say here, because there are so many like little sort of tips that you can give to people. The thing is that you kind of never know what you're going to get. <laughs> so, and it's more like, as, as we were saying at the beginning, when I came to Japan, I really just came very uh, open-minded and taking each experience as, as it comes. And just, you know, um, the people that you are uh, communicating with, take them as individuals listen to them put your focus on them when you're when you're communicating um i would say that would get you a lot i would say that would get you a long way compared to thinking about this little you know do you do this and how you hand you how do you hand your business cards over and all those kind of things you know <laughs> just uh really focus on the individuals you're talking to Mm, that's really important because a lot of times, at least from my experience, you can get overwhelmed by those tips and tricks. They're useful, but if you haven't quite processed them yet, they just get in the way because you're too worried about doing things right that you miss out on <laughs> the actual experience and the actual interaction. That's that's absolutely it because it gets it's this is what people 
get tied up in the head, as we talked about earlier, um, the, the obsession with doing things right, you kind of get into that. So when you are focused with how do I how do I do this right? How do I say this right? You're not focusing on the other person. So you're not having the same level of communication that you could have. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time on the podcast today. I, I really enjoyed it and I definitely learned a lot and I know that my audience will as well. But is there anything that we didn't really get to talk about or that you wish we had spoken a little bit more about before we wrap things up for today? I mean, there's so much that we could talk about. <laughs> I think we've uh, we've covered plenty of topics there. And what I would say to, to your listeners is just, you know, because it's so, it's so easy when you listen to a podcast um, and you get oh, like, all this information, all this information. The, the question is then, what do you do with it? And not rather than attempting to sort of take everything, just take something from this episode that's relevant for you. Do what works for you. <laughs> and then use that to make a difference in your life. And then when it makes a difference in your life, that also has that ripple effect, positive ripple effect on those around you. So do that too. Yeah, definitely. Thanks again. Thank you so much. I hope that you enjoyed today's interview. Be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to learn more about Helen and the coaching services that she offers. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using. And also leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, please check out the link to the show's coffee page to keep me well caffeinated and making content. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. I'd love to hear from you directly, so if you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find the link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo.